to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My guest today is a good friend of mine and one of the most talented guitar players I've ever met. And his name is Will McFarlane. He's a pillar of the Muscle Shoals recording scene and has been since 1980. We'll get to all of that because he has way more to offer. So welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Will. Thanks for being my guest today. It's great to be here, Andreas. So I usually start my conversation with a simple question is what is like the earliest musical memory you can remember? You know, my real earliest one that I remember, and I know it sh I, I had much before this because my father once told me that my mother uh, uh, sang around the house all the time, but she passed when I was very young. So I think I have a blank space back there, you know, but I remember Believe it or not, hearing Bobby Darren singing Dream Lover, I, I was five or six, you know, and it just had this rhythm and thing. It was just a pop tune that caught me that I just loved. And uh, I know that sounds crazy. I was probably maybe six and I just wanted to be musical. And so I uh, my dad was overseas at the time and uh, in the Navy. And so I was staying uh, with family and Texas. And they said, well, we got to get them started. So they got all the kids started in Texas with uh, a lady named Alwana, a little woman who gave voice lessons to all the kids in town and put little youth choirs together and things like that. And, uh, and she, I started singing. I just, and she was hip. She knew I, when I told her I like Dream Lover, she, I think, got the music for that for me, you know, and Poison Ivy by the Coasters. And it wasn't just like, La, 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 la. You know, it was, it was, she taught me sort of the pop tunes of the day. And that would have been 1957, eight. And so I, those are my first musical where I was participating musically. I was probably about six, maybe. Okay. Was guitar the first instrument you picked up? Or was there no, uh, when uh, my dad remarried. And she was very musical, and she had Platters records around the house, and I, she could tell I just loved music as a kid. So at about seven, I guess she said, "You ought to, you ought to take some piano lessons." And I said, "Great, that'd be great." And there was a piano in the house, and I guess maybe I'd sat down and plunked at it or something. So my stepmother gave me piano lessons, and um, it's funny because I realized right at the beginning I had a pretty quick ear, so my reading chops stayed really low. I could learn a Schumann sonata and not really know how to read it. You know, she'd play it for me and I'd know how it goes. I might glance at it, but I've never been a great reader, but my ear would always pick up on this stuff. And I played the piano from seven to almost 12. And in, of course, February 9th, 1964 was a seminal evening in my life. Uh, I watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And of course there was no piano in the band, but 
But it was more than that. It was like somewhere deep in my soul, I just went, that's what I do. That's, you know, so after that, I, I got the guitar. And there's a whole generation of musicians who, that was their... Aha moment. Their aha moment, their light bulb, for sure. Yeah. 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 So uh, did you then already imagine yourself being a musician for life? Or how did that come about? I because actually... I know you're... You're a very smart guy, and, and so that kind of runs in your family of being like highly educated people. And I, I'm sure that could have been a career path for you, too. Well, you're very intuitive there. Uh, my father believed education was the most important thing in life. It was honestly his number one focus in life. A very brilliant man. He had an engineering degree from Naval Academy. He had a master's in logistics from the war school in Monterey, Pentagon. And he had a Juris Doctorate in practice law. I mean, he was a brilliant man. And he really truly believed that if you didn't have two postgraduate degrees, you just wasted your mind. My mother, who, as I mentioned earlier, had passed when I was five, I didn't know till I was an adult that she had perfect pitch and she had a music degree from the University of Texas. So I didn't have her as a daily influence in my life. I had a left-brained engineering test pilot for my f parent. But in my DNA, there was this musical thing that always felt like if I wasn't being music musical, something was wrong with me on the inside. But my father's was outspoken. Music is part of a well-rounded education, but you don't do it for a living. So I just figured that was it. I would never be able to be a musician. Most of my young days, I was in, from the time I saw the Beatles, I bet you it wasn't a month or six weeks that I didn't, that I had a band together. And we were doing Beatles songs and, you know, Searchers and Dave Clark Five and everything that was the Mercy Beat, you know. And then we found out, wow, C. Berry wrote this one. Who's Chuck Berry, you know, and you found out about him and and Little Richard. And so I had a, a little junior high rock and roll band, you know, within a month and a half of seeing the Beatles. And and yet, if I got a B in school, Dad would restrict me from the band because it was obviously distracting me from my true thing in life. And every couple of years, he drove me down to the Naval Academy and assumed I would just, I assumed I would go to the Naval Academy and be a fighter pilot, really. And so my senior year was a very volatile year. I got out of high school in 1969. And that was just a volatile year, you know. Vietnam was at its height. We just come out of the Tet Offensive. People were putting soldiers down. But I, I admired soldiers. But at that point, I just knew I wasn't one. You know, I, I just knew I wasn't a soldier. And I went to college very briefly because there was a lottery that year. And they picked your birthday out of a hat, basically. And that's the order they drafted you. And they picked my number 218. So they didn't call me. And as soon as I knew I wasn't going to immediately be drafted, I just dropped out of college. And my father was, well, what are you going to do with your life? You're throwing your life away. And I said, Dad, I've got to take a shot at music. And I almost did it under duress. You know, I told him, you know, I'm not doing this to be rebellious to you or, or to find significance in life. I just honestly, Dad, feel that if I don't play music, something's broken. I'm disconnected in some way. So I, uh, I sort of fell in it. You know, I started playing coffee shops and you know what I mean? I moved into Greenwich Village and we started doing open mic night at places that, you know, you'd see the pictures of Bob Dylan and Paul Simon on the, you know, Gerties and, 
you know, Cafe Juan, places like that. We were just doing open mic nights at, I was 17, and, and just, you know, living on brown rice and pancakes and trying to be a musician. Yeah. So you had your first big break as a pro professional musician, getting noticed by Bonnie Raitt and then joining her band. What took you from the coffee houses to that point where you were ready for that moment? I can honestly tr attribute it almost to one man. He, we were all young. He was probably 19. I think he's a couple of years older than me. I was 17. Maybe he was 20 and I was 18, whatever, during that period of time. We were a trio. I, I was songwriting and I had a couple of high school buddies, uh, a guitar player and a bass player. And we were sort of like a, what they might call now Americana, you know, back then, I don't know what it was. It was just sort of roots, rootsy, country, folk rock trio that we did harmonies. And, uh, but of course in high school, I, I liked everything on the radio. I liked Otis Redding and I liked Cream and I liked, you know, uh, but, uh, we met up with a drummer and, uh, uh, one of my buddy's friends had a barn in upstate New York and we went up and just woodshed it up there. And we met these guys and we got a house. It was like a hippie house, you know, with beads for doors and, and the band set up in the living room. And Paul Siegel is his name. He's a very accomplished man at this point. He did the... I got to meet him in New York. That's years. right. Yeah. Well, Paul had... 2000 records and he just started saying will you would love this and you he, he exploded my mind i mean truly with roots and just every motown record and all of booker t and the meters they kill and i realized and i loved playing rhythm guitar we had a lead guitar player in the band i probably played the guitar for five or six years before i ever even took a solo because i didn't care i loved listening to the hi-hat and being a rhythm player, you know, those were the those were the guys that really moved my soul and the meters really did it for me. And so Paul and we he he'd say, How about this guys? And we just try to learn it. So my musical education began in a farmhouse in upstate New York, living together with the band. And if we wanted to learn a Buddy Holly song, we learned a Buddy Holly song. If we wanted to learn a Muddy Waters or a Howlin' Wolf song, we learned it. Or, or Jerry Reed, who I loved. Or, um, or Merle Haggard. You know, we had a live Merle Haggard record. We did Silver Wings. And we, you know, learned Stones. We had Bobby Womack stuff. And we learned his version of It's All Over Now. And, and so my musical age became older than my chronological age. And Paul helped with that. He just... He just had, I don't think anybody loves music more than Paul. And he imparted that to all of us. And I started to just love music and listen to all kinds. And so when I moved to Cambridge, because we heard that was a great place to gig, all the clubs were hiring bands four and five nights a week. And so we moved up to Cambridge as a band. And the band broke up very soon there afterwards. I just sort of hired out as a rhythm guitar player in this band. And Dick Waterman, her management, who I owe a lot to, her manager, He's the guy who went and found Sun House after knowing, and he went and found Arthur Crudup and Fred McDowell, and he introduced Bonnie to Fred McDowell. I mean, and where would her slide playing be without, you know what I mean? He was, yeah. And he wasn't just a photojournalist or a music lover. I mean, he has definitive pictures of Bobby Kennedy and Ted Williams. I mean, he's just a great photographer and a great thinker, unusual man and, and highly gifted 
and intelligent. And he he just started showing up about every other gig I'd played, just these little bars. And people told me who he was. And I was like, wow. And one night he just showed up, sat down in the front row with Bonnie. And it was the last song of the set. We were doing an Al Green song. I don't remember exactly which one. I think it was like, let's stay together. Of course, I loved Teeny Hodges. He was a rhythm player. And I was just the guitar player in, in this band. And right as the set ended, she just jumped up and said, well, introduce me. And I was like, and we just stood and talked and all this. And she'd just been out as a duo with Freebo for years. And she would open for Little Feet or maybe Orleans or Paul Butterfield's Better Days or things like that. Did you know of her at that point at all? I did because I had seen her in concert in 1972 or something, opening for Paul Butterfield's Better Days. And she was, her voice is, I mean, if you ask me, She's one of the, well, she may be the finest interpretive singer of my generation. I mean, I just think once Bonnie does a song, it's hers. It's just, you know, who else in a way, you know, I mean, she's just an amazing soulful singer. And, and i still think that they've never even really captured her on record. I mean, because when she's in the room with you, it's like you hear overtones in her voice and you hear just how amazingly effortless her 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 singing is and so she's right down front and we're talking and said well she's going to open for jackson on the late for the sky tour and she felt she needed her own band finally and after all so i actually ended up being in her first full band and and my first tour i mean i went from making you know ten dollars a night and all the beer i could drink you know to the late for the sky tour with bonnie Raitt and jackson brown yeah did you ever Enter recording studio pre Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, we did. We demoed all our stuff, and we actually that was a, a really a thing I I can tip my hat to to these days because uh, uh, sound on sound was at a very low ebb at the time, and you had to spend a lot of money, you know, maybe or whatever, and the studios might be three track, four track, or whatever. So you had to get it right. You had to go in there, and your background harmonies were right. You took the solo. You know what I'm saying? And your stops. And if you blew it, you had to start over again. There was no punching in or, you know, we just didn't have the technology. And a lot of us old guys, I think it stood us in good stead, you know, to, to have to get it right the first time. And I'm not going to say that I don't mind the fact that yesterday at the session here at the Nut House, there were a couple of times I went, uh, can you take the first half of that and put it with the second half of that? And, you know, and Jimmy's so great, he can just fly things around and clean clean up my messes. But but my my original studio experiences the whole time we were learning and doing demos and pitching deals that four years between the time I dropped out of college and got hired by Bonnie it's about four and a half years yeah we did a bunch of demos and and uh, and I was hired every now and then to sing for people's like little co- local commercials or stuff like that so I'd been in headphones. Yeah. The- do you still have a copy of some of those early recordings? I wish. I think Paul might. I think there's an acetate somewhere of an actual pressing we did that would be frightening to hear right now. Uh, but uh, I remembered I wrote a song, and all I remember was the hook went, you know, it was talking about a girl I'd fallen in love with driving through Texas. And her name was Amarilla or whatever. And the chorus was, you make it easy to love you, Amarilla. And I just remember that. That's the only song I remember that I wrote back then when I was 17 or 18. And uh, I mean, they were probably pretty amateurish. 
But then again, but any song that sticks with you for 45 years yeah, right. has something to it. Yeah. And I, every time, you know, like Lynn Williams is from Amarillo. And every time he says Amarillo, I think you make it easy to love you, Amarillo, because I wrote that song when I, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I, I have little, I guess, numismatic brain tricks that remind me of things. Yeah. So for that Jackson Brown tour, you joined Bonnie's band. Yeah. And Bonnie is a guitar player herself with a very uh, unique style. I mean, very much steep in that history, but she made it her own. And it's very, yes. you know, she's one of those players who we've been talking about B.B. King, you know, with less is more. Yeah. She's certainly dad. Absolutely. How did the two of you like coexist as guitar players in the band or maybe also learn from each other or you know, add to what each other was contributing? Did you just kind of naturally just fell into it or was there ever something discussed or between the two of you? There there was. We had a lot of conversations and I can honestly say getting ready for that, you know, they uh, actually after Bonnie wanted me to be in the band, she got, she had to go off tour for three or four or five months. And so I never heard back from her. And I sort of let it go, and I was working for a moving company, you know, just all these out-of-work musicians doing third-floor walk-ups in Cambridge for 400,000, you know, guitar students, I mean, uh, college students. And uh, all of a sudden, I get this call uh, from her manager, and he said, uh, hey, Will, thought I'd flag you down. We're still thinking about you. Would you be prepared to do a 50-city tour with Bonnie and Jackson Brown? And of course, I'd heard, you know, these days, and Doctor My Eyes, and and I was, well, absolutely. He goes, well, let me send you, I'll send you her records. She had four records out up to through Streetlights at that point. She sent me all four of them. And he said, and here's, this will probably be the set list, but I'm so glad I didn't listen to that because not one of the songs, he said, the set list, because she decided to do other stuff and get ready for the next record, which I ended up on, which was great. But I don't, I would shed it. I had two weeks. And I, I don't know if I've ever practiced that hard in my life to just simply... Because I was never a lead guitar player up until then, really. I was the rhythm player, which is really what she needed. She needed somebody to be colorful and come up under her wing. She didn't need some hot rod over on the side. Uh, but she also wanted slide when she wasn't playing slide. So I really got my slide chops together. Like, I played slide on Taking My Time, some, uh, some uh, even on her records. Was that all... Uh, standard tuning slide at that point or did it do... was for me until I discovered or she and Lowell and Rye were all in that sort of basic G tuning but I was cheating too because I had to hold down the fort too so a lot of times I've dev I'm, I'm way better just dropping the high E string to a D and keeping the rest of it standard tuning because I played standard so long but every now and then especially like like we just rehearsed last night with Leroy Parnell and he's an open a, you like Lowell, you know, but it's that G, it's the same thing as an open G tuning, which Bonnie is. And um, and I just never got used to the straight bar. I, I'm used to, you know, I'm used to moving. And so I actually have sort of a hybrid tuning. Uh, but with her, when I first ended up in the band, I, I think the thing that won me the gig, because everybody in L.A., you know, there's David Lindley and all of these great players in Jackson's band, and they heard Bonnie hired some guy out of a bar in Cambridge. And they're thinking, what are you thinking? You could get anybody you want in L.A. And, and so they were real, uh, they, they, not 
they walked on eggshells a little around me because they assumed I was going to get fired in the first few days, you know. But rehearsal went like a breeze because she went, well, okay, under the fallen sky. And I just knew it. And, and you know what I'm saying. So I knew everything she wanted to do. And she went, man, this is easy. How about this? How about this? And we just, our first rehearsal, I played it like I'd like the record. And so uh, we went out and did the tour. And about three weeks into it, I got really sick. I got strep throat and we had three days off. And I just sat in my hotel room with a guitar and just invented myself. This song, I'm not giving, I'm not catching the energy in this one as well. I need to be a better soloist here. I need to play less on this one. I need to just hold it. You know, when I, I invented myself in this hotel room for three days and sort of became one of the guys. And she kept me in her band for another five years after that. And then you went into studio with her too. Yeah, I was. That was an important album from her for for her because I think that the biggest hit of her career up to that point came from the next album. That's right. That was Del Shannon's you know cover of Del Shannon's Runaway. Yeah, I'm I'm fortunate. I played on the her. It was her first gold record, which is amazing to think. It was uh, that was Sweet Forgiveness. The the first record I did with her was Home Plate, and. and they brought in John Hall as well from Orleans, who's great. I mean, he was actually the shoes I sort of had to fill because he played on the solos on her records, you know what I mean? And he did her records before me. And so he was like a big brother to me musical. And he was a generous man, too. He he, he let me know what he was doing and how to make it better. And, and uh, so she brought in Billy Payne from Little Feet and Gary Malibur on drums and John Hall and Fred Tackett on acoustic guitar. And so I just had to hold down the fort and, and you know, come up with some interesting parts. And I, I think I did on that. And so the next record, she did just her live band, which is very rare, you know, for an art solo artist to go into the studio with her live band. And so I did Sweet Forgiveness. And that was her first gold record, that single of Runaway. Yeah. And how long did you stay with, with her? I left her band in 1980. So I was with her from 74 to 80. And I moved here. Yeah, tell me how that happened. You met Jimmy Johnson in a hotel in L.A.? I did. Uh, I was. I had met Duncan Cameron, who was playing in the Amazing Rhythm Aces, and they'd just done a record here with Jimmy Johnson producing it. And he introduced me to Mike Barnett, who was uh, the uh, record company. They'd started their own record label here, and Mike Barnett was over it. And... Uh, he entered, Duncan was, and I were just hanging out as guitar players, you know, and he's the one, Duncan actually the first guy who made me sit down and listen to Mac McAnally's Cutting Corners because he just played on it. And so Duncan was a great contact, you know, and, and a friend, delightful guy, great guitar player, super talented. And I learned from Duncan, you know, just hanging out in his house, you know, I'd pick up little things. And one day he said, I want you to meet Jimmy Johnson. And he was in a hotel room. He was at the Sunset Marquee. And so they brought me over there, and they said, this is Will McFarlane, and he's been with Bonnie all these years, but he just left her band, and he's looking to, for the next thing he's going to do in life. And Jimmy goes, well, play me a song. And so I played him a song. Do you and remember go- what you played? I played him a song called Secret Side. Is that an original? It was an original I'd written, yes. And uh, she's your woman, your friend, but time and again, the truth will come and go. But you help when you can. You're glad you're her man and you love to let her know. But don't give it all away if you want her to stay. Keep a secret or two, a secret side of you. 
because some men search in vain through the heartache and pain as far as they can go. But is it wise to uncover the things in your lover you may not want to know? Give her room to be herself. She'll wind up as someone else. You know, keep a secret or two, a secret side of you. And I sing this song to him and he goes, well, play me something I don't like. And he said, I would love to demo that. And as a matter of fact, he flew me right down here like the next month. We demoed it. And he put the studio band together with Roger, you know, David, Clayton, Randy, Mac McAnally, and Duncan Cameron. That was his first studio band. And then he brought in Lenny, uh, uh, Eddie Struzik, and Robert Byrne to do background vocals. I mean, I was in rare air. And... uh and he demoed it and pitched it to um, McGuinn Hillman, who Wexler was here producing at the time, and they cut it, actually. So he signed me to their publishing company right off the bat. I went back to L.A. and gave everybody notice. And I was getting I was getting studio calls. I was a guy in L.A. that if you couldn't get James Burton, you know, there were a lot of brilliant guitar players like Larry Carlton and Jay Graydon and these guys that were the 335 guys. I was a telly guy, strat guy, and if you couldn't get James Burton, they might, like I played on some of the Urban Cowboy soundtrack and and uh, was doing things. So I thought I had a career as a session guy in LA, but when I came down here and wasn't in a traffic jam for three days, you know, in LA, you could sit in your car for four hours and get 38 miles on it someday. And so I just gave everybody notice. They all thought I was committing career suicide. And I headed across the Mojave Desert with my young family and moved here in 1980. So let's talk a little bit about Jimmy Johnson because I'd love to. I know in many ways he's, you know, kind of almost a father figure for you, I guess, yeah. or a mentor. Uh, and he, I mean, he's probably one of my favorite guitar players in the world, and I'll tell you why. And somebody else, you know, like Steve Cropper, or you take those early Muscle Shoals rhythm section recordings and you take the rhythm guitar out and they fall flat on the floor. You're exactly right. And he just exactly knew or felt what it needed to make those records groove the way they needed to groove. That's like, I'll take you there. He just scratches. He doesn't even voice a chord. Absolutely. But it's the, you take that out of the track and it doesn't gallop anymore. And there's, he's so, in, you know, so important to that sound. And there's not many guitar players who ever did that as effectively. Just being part of the rhythm section, really to almost be a percussionist rather than a guitar yeah. player. And to me, that's like nowadays even more. It's it's so overlooked and underrated at the same time because you're not the hotshot if that's what you play. But there are so many guitar players they might be able to copy, you know, Eddie Van Halen solos note for note. But when they really need to be the meat and potatoes. They can't do it. So tell me a little bit about your relationship with with Jamie. Well, I I absolutely owe so much to Jimmy Johnson and how much he taught me how to get things on tape. Like here I had already done L.A. recordings. I've done Bonnie Raitt records. I moved down here, but I went to school with Jimmy. Jimmy, I, I think I appeared at a good time for him, too because he was ready to sit on the other side of the glass a lot more. And he wasn't, you know, he didn't have to be on the floor. And I, in a way, became his sort of, uh, not just, he wasn't just my mentor. I became his alter ego in a way, because I could do the simple stuff, but I could do, he could say, I want, 
you know, this kind of solo or this or that. And I think he also liked the idea that he could go, I want to, I want a Bobby Womack thing here. Or, or, yeah, I knew who these people were. I knew, you know, or, uh, this is more of a Buddy Holly thing. Or yeah. could we get a Lukather tone on you? And that's still true to this day. You have this chameleon like quality to step in all these directions without abandoning who is Will McFarlane, but kind of you're like, you know, you're a toolbox in many ways. Um, and you you're you rarely ever run out of vocabulary. Yeah. And that's I think that's one of the things that makes you great. Because well, you and there must be a lot of listening, a lot of, you know, soaking all of that up and analyzing it too. But I think that's one thing that I you know, that everybody who has Will McFarlane on the floor knows they can just dip in all of that and it makes a producer work real easy because it's like i can hire you to track a whole record even if it's all across the board because i know you can tap into this you can tap into this you can tap into this and you make it so easy for i me. appreciate that good I, I i tell people i'm not mind-blowing or excellent at anything, but I'm real good at a bunch of stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not like a super technical speed guy, but I tip my hat in a lot of different directions. And I, it's because I love a lot of kinds of music. I, you know, I, I loved listening to the band, but I loved listening to Merle Haggard, but I loved listening to Chuck Berry, and I loved listening to Otis Redding or, or, or Ray Charles. And and also working with Clayton Ivey in a lot of ways. You know, you go, he, he's never met a half-diminished he didn't like. So <laughs> even if it's in a three-chord country song, he'll somehow or another Sneak one in. in movement towards one of his songs. And, and he would, you know, if I walked with him maybe just on a bass note, he'd go, put the D-flat on top of that half-diminished. And I'd think, well, wait a minute, that's all I can do to just, you know. And so I learned a lot of theory in building chord structures by being in headphones with great players. And I love to listen and go, oh, is that what they're doing? And and Jimmy would sit on the glass and he'd go, Will, first of all, we need some we need some rhythm, you know, chinks here. And and so I might go out and he'd go, no, nah, not two and four on this one. Let's go and of two. One, two, jack. Or he might go, let's let's go one jack. You know, it, that's what you're talking about yeah. is he almost very rarely ever just went like that. He he, he mixed it up like uh, he's he, he's the rhythm guitar player on like Misty Blue for Dorothy Moore and things yeah. like that that you don't realize are starting all over again. Jing, 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 jing. Put delay on it. And he's that guy. He He's very creative with where he likes to place. So whenever I'm working, like for you, for like on Carl, Carla's record, I, I many times tried to listen to the, maybe do a, I got used to, I moved into New York City the first year after I was with Bonnie because Paul Siegel called me and said, Cornell Dupree's playing four nights a week with Steve Gadd and Richard T and Gordon Edwards. How great stuff was and this was pre-stuff they weren't even stuff yet they were just session guys playing and then eric gale started showing up and dave sanborn and you know and chris started showing up uh, playing with steve i mean how great are they i mean you know and so i moved into new york city and sublet an apartment and sat at cornell dupree's feet three nights a week when i was home and he had a rhythm lead style where he'd be doing he'd be holding down the chinks and the chops but he'd be moving melodically he might go, and the track would percolate. 
just the way he played. And it was a major influence listening to Cornell Dupree. And, and I started to develop that lead rhythm. It's like I move, you know, and number charts suit me great because they're not telling me what to do. They're telling me where to land. You know what I mean? So you go to the four and you just might slide up on sixes or you might do it on fours. And 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 I've heard so many of these wonderful old soul records and listened to so many rhythm players that my reservoir is, you know, it's pretty full. And another one is Reggie Young. Oh, well, yeah, we were talking before this interview on Reggie. Reggie may be the most influential overall guitar player in my life. Reggie, and if you don't know out there in Podland who Reggie is, he's probably the entry lick to, you know, 500 chart singles you've heard. Son of a Preacher Man, Drift Away is his most seminal. Uh, I Can Help, that augmented run. Suspicious Minds for Elvis. He's the sitar on Cry Like a Baby. He's Sweet Caroline. He's he's everything George Strait ever did. He's he's the solo on Merle Haggard's That's the Way Love Goes. He, he, he You've heard him. You, if you've ever listened, if you listen to the radio for 30 minutes, you'll probably hear a Reggie Young lick. I mean, major, major. I think he's the finest tracking musician in the world uh, of all time, maybe. That's yeah. maybe, maybe subjective on my part because I love the man. But uh, And he was generous of spirit. When I did sessions with him, he was very, what are you doing over there? Oh, man, look at the plug into my rig. Show, you know, he was just so generous. And so, uh, yeah, Reggie, Reggie's an amazing, amazing session guy. And so, yeah, I hold him and Cornell Dupree and Jimmy Johnson. And, of course, listening to entry licks like Soul Man and that stuff, all that Steve Cropper. And then the Wilson Pickett song, I'm in love with that Bobby weird timing Womack. with Bobby Womack and Reggie, the right and left. And it's like, talk about a conversation. I think that's a rhythm guitar playing masterpiece. And then, you know, all the Al Green stuff with Teeny Hodges. And that that's where I would, if I don't get to play a solo on a record, I'm good. I if, if, if I feel like, man, we cut some musical soulful tracks and I moved a little between chords, but tastefully, I, I I'm happy, man. I feel that's 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 what I'm doing. Yeah. So, you arrive in Muscle Shoals in the very early '80s. Muscle Shoals just off of a 15-year streak of gold, yes. basically. But this is at the time where things start slowing down, and you arrived there at the time. How did you find? The muscle shoals or the state of muscle shoals was that something that was felt or is it something like well the, we'll keep continuing that or was that something in the air somewhat yeah that you could tell the disappointment when people well that was also the beginning of the digital age and all of a sudden people could you know they had drum machines all of a sudden the lindrum had come out and People could sit in their own house and they're thinking, why should I go spend $1,000 a day in a studio when I can sit in my own? You know, that really became the beginning of home recording sort of, you know. And so you've, the depression here, I think in 1982, I, I, if I remember, there was something like 1,500 studios closed nationwide. Something, it was an enormous number. That may be a factoid, but it was a big number. I, for some reason, I, I, I remember 1,500. And so there was a discouragement and we'd have meetings like, what do we need to do to be relevant to the music business now? And you know what I'm saying? Um, it was it was a tough transition. Uh, people weren't coming 
here to to make records that much. I mean, there still were, you know, guys who had big money wanted to come to a studio, but in general, the smaller budget, you know, projects stopped booking the big major studios. And um, and that was just a few years after they opened the state of the art facility down by the river. Oh, yeah. To... yeah, it was tough. They just, I got here and went right into that facility and, started playing with them and I, I still feel incredibly honored to have been invited in to that rhythm section and and uh we uh it started slowing down until Malico bought it. And even then it's sort of a mixed bag, but I think there were certain expectations of that that did or didn't happen. But nonetheless, uh there was at least some consistent you know, you knew that every six weeks you're going to get a, a Malico project and they cut lots of tunes you know what I mean I mean they'd come in and for four days and we'd cut like 25 yeah, tunes I a mean albums. yeah we'd do a couple of albums you know in a row and it, you know getting paid by the tune and it might it'd be living in Alabama it was my monthly nut you know I could like make my monthly nut in four days you know so in the like after you came here between then and when Malico started coming here what were some of the memorable projects you played on? Is there anything that sticks out in those were couple, two, three, three years? Actually, the stuff that really sticks out in those in those years were the uh, the gospel stuff that started to happen. Uh, there was a real spiritual revival that came through this town with a lot of musicians like Lenny LeBlanc and Cindy Richardson and and me and you know Ronnie Eads and. And people got wind of it and sent projects down here, like Michelle Pilar, and and uh, you know what I'm saying. We started to get, do a ton of gospel stuff. I think anytime you have Lenny LeBlanc in your headphones, you're on a good project. You know what I mean? And so got to play for Lenny's stuff and Cindy's stuff, and uh, and Michelle's, and actually, uh, little studio over here uh, called East Avalon. Just because of Jerry Wallace and Terry Skinner writing big hits, they started to get all this production stuff, and Jerry and Terry started to use me for everything. I ended up playing guitar on the first four Forrester Sisters number ones. You know, that's pretty cool. The Kendall stuff was over there. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, in a, you know, North Alabama is one of the finest places in the world to retire in in a, in a fixed income because it's just not as expensive down here. And so if you just got a little bit of steady work, you know, you go in and do a Forrester Sisters record, man, that's like your monthly or, you know, your monthly nut or whatever. You cut 10 tracks in two days and, and it's union and you know, all you need is gas money after that, you know. And so it was like we lived... You know, I have three kids, and we lived very frugally here. It wasn't like those years were very frugal. and uh, But thankfully, we had good friends, and and our kids, you know, had friends. And and uh, it was, a, it was a down professionally in a way, but it was also a chance for, you know, after me being gone with Bonnie on the road 180, 200 days a year, you know, all those years, all of a sudden it gave Janet and me a chance to reconnect down here in a slower environment where I didn't have to get in my car and drive 
you know, an hour and a half to a rehearsal, you know, in L.A. And, and we just settled into this wonderful Southern gentility, you know. Yeah. How did your songwriting kind of start and progress? Was that all happening at the same time? Is that something you did very early on? Yeah, early on, I always felt like I had songs. I'd hear melodies and I'd try to put them together. When I think back, as we talked earlier, I, I think they probably sounded amateurish, but I started to really play, you know, right from my heart. I started to just, no, I, I want to go here, there, or I want to stay on the one here. I, you know, I, I'm obviously a talkative person, so a lot of times lyrically, I probably overwrote. You know, I think that a lot of progression came in trying to say the same thing with more a more concise, to paint a picture in a simpler way as opposed to telling them everything you you know about it. You know, you want to just say a few things. I think some of that just comes with aging. You know, you just learn how to make sense with a little bit less. It's like playing the guitar. You know, you used to feel that you had to show them you know something, and now you get hired for what you leave out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the same with songwriting, I believe, that that you... You learn what to leave out. Yeah. So we're now in the early 80s. And after that, you recorded a string of Christian albums. I did. And moved away from here, moved back, but never quit music. No. And now you're in a great band called Big Shoes, which... Alone, we could talk talk about for a whole episode. We'll have to come to a close here for this time, but please promise me to come back and we'll pick it up in the early 80s and we'll tell the, 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 the rest, rest of, of the, the story, story. <laughs> and then I'll have you back again in 10 years and we'll tell the other, the, the next That's great. The next part. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed you spending these past 45 minutes with me here today. I sure appreciate your... Well, it's certainly your friendship, but also just you, what you bring to a session, what you bring to a show. It's just a joy being around you because you radiate, you know, sunshine. Just, well, I appreciate that. And well, you, 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 as well. You're, and you're, you know, a smart guy, too. So I know you, you're never out of, a, of an intelligent conversation with you, too. And that's another thing I certainly enjoy. And just to wrap this up, uh, and I know you... You mentioned that to me a couple of times over, over the years, but we basically ran into each other 10 years ago, almost to this day, actually. Wow. Uh, at When you got inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame with the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. What an amazing and, uh, generosity of them to include me, you know. As Jimmy put it, they, you know, they called him to, to say, we want to put the Swampers in. And Jimmy just said, well, we couldn't have done it without our friends. And he goes, well, who are your friends? And he said, you know, at one point, Will McFarlane goes, who's he? You know, and he goes, well, he played with Bonnie, played with us 20 years. But he also said Pete Carr and Clayton Ivey and Randy McCormick and Spooner. And, and just the generosity, that's just another part of their generosity to include us to go in. I'll never forget walking along the side of that building. And you ran up to me and said, my name's Andreas. And, and I love the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. And I want to meet you. And I, and I just remember us just on the street just you know and it's you've been a delight to know ever since and you've brought me into a lot of really fascinating projects yourself you know that uh man carla's record is driving music to me i have i keep it in my car and it sounds great 
And uh, so knowing you, the same thing. It's It's been a pleasure, Andreas. And we'll talk about some of the projects we had the chance to, to collaborate on, I'm sure, uh, next time around. You're going to be playing with Calvin Holland. That's somebody else I'll have on my podcast before too long. I already talked to him, and he said, yeah, sure. And then we'll have you back and talk a little bit more about the guitar dynamics between you and your current, you know, yeah. guitar slinging partner. So uh, anyway, it's it's been a joy. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. That's great. My very good pleasure. <laughs> This was the 37th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please make sure to check out some of our past episodes and subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour podcast on iTunes, TuneIn or Stitcher, or you can also listen on SoundCloud and YouTube. That's it for now. See you next time.